Yeah, I was just um, wondering if you had any quarantine hobbies. I feel like now people are using this as a time to like try the things that they didn't have the time to try before. Um, I am not really a hobby person in general. I've tried like picking up a little bit of yoga just to fix my back pain from laying in bed all day, basically. But that's pretty oh much my it. God, yes, <laughs> I lit. I literally just texted my friend group and I was like the thing I miss most about childhood is my back not hurting seriously yeah that's the number one thing because yeah I like oh gosh sitting in my horrible chair all day is the worst but I even I don't think I do yoga I do like bar um but it's still like got some yoga stretches yeah. in it still doesn't help not bar is hard I've done bar it's it's hard <laughs> bar is the best i love it and i like even during this quarantine went out and bought a bar for my house because i'm that desperate but i still feel terrible um well no because i've started you know like many other quarantine things and i've gotten really into like trying to like bake things and like cook and well i cooked a lot before but the baking thing i wasn't so keen on so i tried to make (laughs) a sourdough starter because all the stores are out of yeast right now and I want to make bread. Okay. And so a sourdough starter is you get like water and like flour and you mix it together and then you leave it sitting out on your counter and then you have to feed it. So what? You, <laughs> you have to give it more water and more flour. Okay. So then it becomes like a yeasty type thing. And it only took me like three days to kill my sourdough starter. It was really, it's not good. Hello everyone and welcome to Pink Collar Crime, a true crime podcast focusing exclusively on crimes committed by women. I'm Rachel. And I'm Natalie. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. Each week we're going to tell you about one or two cases of crimes committed by women and discuss details, motives, similarities, and differences, etc, etc. If you like our show, tell your friends. Please subscribe and give us a five-star rating and tell us what you love or don't love about the show. And give us a follow on social media at pinkcollar underscore pod. So today's episode, we're going to talk about women who kidnap other people, specifically small people, um, more commonly known as children. um, Or babies. Or babies, yes. mostly, Mostly just babies. Actually, definitely just babies. So this is... A phenomenon a type of thing where it is um not fairly common but there are you know have been quite a few cases of women who kidnap babies from like hospitals sometimes they kidnap 
babies, you know, they trick like mothers who are about to give birth and steal their babies. And it's just kind of a weird, not cool thing to do. Um, so before we get started into our cases, I just wanted to provide a little bit of history and, and you know, the psychology behind this sort of thing. Um, so over and this information is from ABC News. So over the past five decades, there have been about 325 cases of infant abduction. And it turns out that the majority of people who commit this crime are females, which I think is different from, you know, every other crime out there. It's more, it's more statistically likely that men um, are doing, you know, murder and things like that. But this is one case in particular where it's more common with women, which is why I think it would be really interesting for us to to talk about that. So the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children analyzed all of the cases um, in the past five decades and found that most of the abductors used similar tactics when they were kidnapping and they mostly fit a similar psychological profile. So it's uh, fairly common for women to steal babies in an attempt to keep a boyfriend or a husband around if they fear that, you know, their partner might leave them. And it's also common for women who have recently lost a child due to miscarriage or a medical condition where they can't have children to then go and try to get a baby elsewhere. Um, so in the past, this was a lot more common. Women would visit nurseries, um, get really familiar with the layout, uh, going as far as to become friendly with hospital staff, and then they would just scoop a baby up and, and walk out the door back when there wasn't as much um, security around in hospitals, which is good now that the security is much higher, but you would think before, you know, no one would be suspicious of a woman walking around um, a nursery unit, whatever they're called, nursery, I don't know. Nursery, um, I think. <laughs> so uh, hospitals now hold code pink drills to prepare for um, like children abduction, and they have many safety standards that have been put into place now to prevent kidnapping. So it's not as easy or, you know, hopefully not even possible at all for women to do this anymore or anyone to do this. Um, they also have other safety standards that have been put into place to prevent kidnapping, like having you have to wear an ID band to verify the parents' identities. I think some of them will even put tags on the children. So if they're taken out of the space, that automatically sets off an alarm. Um, the one silver lining to all of this, if you can even call it that, is that the women who kidnap other children raise the children like their own. And it's not like they're taking them to do bad things to them. And, you know, it may create a really confusing situation later on when they find out that they've been kidnapped. That is terrible. But um, at the very least, they, you know, shower these children with love and, and treat them like, like they're their own babies. Um, so that's all the facts I have about that. I actually do remember... Um, I work in a hospital now and I remember going through training and we had a section on code pinks where they were giving us all these facts about babies being kidnapped and all these measures that they take now, which was interesting to me because you wouldn't think that that would happen, but apparently it's become enough of a problem that they have a whole separate drill for it. Yeah. 
It's awful. I, <clears throat> I'm glad they do trainings, but I, I mean, I'm not a mother. I could not imagine <laughs> like oh, gosh, being yeah. in that position. So that's so just, scary to have to worry about that at a time when, you know, you're like so happy and everything's yeah. great. It's not good. Yeah. Not, not good. Um, so my case is a little different, um, than a little bit of what you've described, but we'll just get in there. You might, you might be familiar with it. I think a couple other podcasts have done it, but I thought it was, um, interesting. So I wanted to do it too. I am doing the case of Georgia Tan. Uh, so she was named after her mother, Beulah, and father, George. Uh, Beulah George Tan was born Beulah. In... What a name. Yeah. I'm not what a, a fan. The whole name I'm not really a fan of, but I'm not going to name shame anyone. Um, so Beulah George Tan was born in 1891 in good old Mississippi. Uh, she was nicknamed Georgia. And her father was a very strict authoritarian district court judge. And from an early age, he imposed his dream of Georgia becoming a a concert pianist on her. She began lessons at the age of five. And even though Georgia hated it, she continued the art until adulthood. And in 1913, she graduated college with a degree in music. After earning her degree, Georgia opted to study for and eventually pass the Mississippi State Bar exam. However, her father did not think a career in law was suitable for a woman, so Georgia ultimately pursued a career in social work. Um, this, like, little side note tangent, do people not need to go to law school in order to become lawyers? Like, can you just take the bar exam? I know, Maybe like... before. I, I, like... Kim Kardashian did it yes. too, right? Like, I just, I don't know. Well, she's not a lawyer yet. But that, I don't get it. <laughs> that's something I think that's specific to California. Okay. That instead of going to law school, you can opt to study under a lawyer for a certain amount of years and get a certain amount of hours. I don't think that's typically the case everywhere else. But I imagine in the 1800s, the standards were not as high as they are today. Yeah. Well, that is certainly my backup plan if I don't get into a PhD <laughs> program. <laughs> uh, her first recorded job in social work was working as the receiving director with the Mississippi Children's Home Society. She was eventually fired in 1924, allegedly due to her dubious child placing techniques. But there, as far as I can tell, there is no information on what these techniques were. Before getting fired, however, she worked alongside Anne Atwood, and according to the internet, Georgia both adopted a daughter named June, and at some point, it's speculated that she also began dating Anne while working for the Mississippi Children's Home Society. Um, They were described as what I I think is called a Boston marriage, uh, which is when two financially independent women live together under the guise of just being single women but really they're in a like romantic relationship oh that's hip i didn't know that that was the name for that a boss yeah yeah and so um obviously they were in the south and so people were a lot more skeptical of boston marriages and felt like they had a very clear homosexual like undertone and so they had to take a lot of steps to keep the true nature of their relationship under wraps. 
Um, still, after Georgia was fired in 1924, they all moved um, from Mississippi to Memphis, Tennessee, where Georgia began working as an executive secretary for the Tennessee Children's Home Society, um, particularly the Shelby branch. Um, so very soon after starting her new role as executive secretary, she somehow managed to take over the society, and it wasn't very long before the kidnapping and child trafficking began. Um, yes. And so back then, adoptions weren't necessarily popular or a common practice. Um, in addition, the adoption game itself wasn't a lucrative practice at all. So while Tennessee law allowed agencies such as the one Georgia ran to place children in appropriate homes for adoption, the law also stipulated that these organizations could only charge for services rendered. Um, Back then, really, the only service was here's a child, basically. And so that meant that the average adoption at the time only cost about $7. Oh, Um, my gosh. Yeah. That's like how much it used to cost to go see a movie when I was a child. <laughs> you won't believe it, but once upon a time, it was like 10 cents to see a movie. So, Oh, my word. <laughs> I would have seen so many movies. Right. <laughs> um, but that reality did not stop Georgia from seeing and seizing the opportunity to make adoptions expensive. So she started arranging expensive adoptions by inflating costs and procuring marketable babies. So in an odd way, Georgia not only made adoptions mainstream, but a chic luxury that only those who can afford it could enjoy. And so her methods for inflating costs were to overcharge for things such as travel, um, multiple visits. So basically she'd be like, well, I need to come meet with you guys, the parents. Um, and so she would, you know, if it cost $5 for her to get there. She'd say it was $50. Um, and then if the parents wanted to see the children or anything, she would charge for that. And she also would charge um, prospective families for various paperwork filings that she never actually filed. One report said that she was charging up to five times more of what the actual paperwork would actually cost if she did file it. And I mean, she wasn't filing it at all. So she was just throwing everything away. And so even for um, prospective parents to see the babies before adopting, they'd have to write a $700 check out to Georgia. Um, Yeah. Which also, I don't know how adoptions work, but like, I guess the way they described it was she had a couple people um, who would take like, a handful of babies to like a hotel they'd book a hotel and then they'd let prospective parents come and see the babies and then like that's how they'd pick and like right and like it's like i don't know adopting a dog or something like it's just strange like i don't know no yeah. that is very weird that's yeah just feels bad Ooh, feels wrong yeah like, I felt like they should know that something is wrong in the situation, but I guess it's not as common. So I guess they didn't know what to expect. But um, so then came the marketable babies. At the time, blonde haired and blue eyed babies were very popular for adoptions. Um, I think that is um, kind of mostly still true. And so the only issue with procuring these marketable babies was that there weren't enough babies in Tennessee orphanages that fit the bill of what Georgia was looking for. Oh, no, and I so can see where this is going. 
Yeah. And so that's when Georgia's deceptive practices became downright criminal and, in my non-professional opinion, insane. Um, Georgia began running an intense operation in which she would arrange for babies and children to be stolen. She hired people to steal desirable children off the street, outside of cars. If they were playing in a park, they would just go and see, oop, blonde hair, blue eyed baby, snatch him. Um, and even if it wasn't a baby, like they still toddlers as well. Um, yeah. And Georgia's pockets ran so deep that she was even able to pay nurses and doctors to help her steal kids that were admitted to the hospital because they were sick and even newborns right after birth. And so she had accomplices in high places, including Camille Kelly, a juvenile court judge who would go out of her way to remove parental rights to children, um, especially from poor parents. And she would transfer those rights to Georgia, who would then put the children up for adoption um, and obviously would charge insane amounts of money for these adoptions as well. And so the New York Post wrote that Georgia was essentially waging a class war. She held the belief that there were two kinds of people, the poor, whom she viewed as incompetent parents, and the wealthy. She fattened her own coffers in the process. I'm not sure what a coffer is, but I'm going to say it's a pocket. Um, <laughs> I have no idea. Never heard of it. And so uh, the most financially lucrative adoptions that Georgia set up were out-of-state adoptions, particularly to New York and California. These adoptions could be as much as $5,000, um, most of which was pocketed by Georgia. Between 1940 and 1950, it's believed that Georgia placed over 3,000 children to those two states alone. So 3,000 times 5,000, that's a lot. I don't know the numbers, but... Me either. I don't know, math? <laughs> a lot of money. She catered to celebrity clientele, including Joan Crawford, Mary Pickford, and Herbert Lehman, um, who all adopted children from Georgia, some of whom possibly were kidnapped children. Um, as far as we know, most adoptive parents had no idea that the children were actually kidnapped. Um, I also read that sometimes parents were kind of picking up on the fact that something was wrong with like the way the adoption was being handled or possibly these aren't children that were given up willingly or were abandoned. And when they would try to bring that up to Georgia or get her to stop, she would kind of leverage the fact that, well, you already paid me $700 to see children. So that makes you guilty of something, even though they hadn't actually done anything. Or if they had already adopted children and they were raising questions, um, Georgia would threaten to have their um, like parental rights terminated. And given that she had a district court judge in her back pocket, I think they, you know, didn't really want to test that water a little bit. So um makes sense yeah it's also alleged that pro wrestler rick flair was among one of the adoptees and was possibly abducted from his birth parents rick flair yeah rick flair um however i read that rick flair doesn't know or care to find out the truth about his adoption or the circumstances of his birth or anything like that um, for what it's worth, even if he was interested, he probably would have ha would have had a difficult time finding any answers because Georgia had a strict policy of shredding all records. Um, so any attempts to locate or track children would be 
pretty difficult. Uh, she marketed this to adoptive parents as being closed adoptions, but really she, like at a certain point, she just would have no idea truly what, who this child is, where it came from, because she was not keeping any records of anything. Um, and so unfortunately Georgia didn't immediately put the children that she had quote procured up for adoption nor did she place them in homes with families immediately instead she would place them at the Tennessee Children's Home Society where many of them faced cruel treatment and neglect of basic needs like food and medication some of them suffered physical and sexual abuse by Georgia's staff and sometimes at the hands of Georgia herself yeah um it i also read that she would like intentionally hire drug addicts and pedophiles to work at the home um to care for the children because i guess she could pay them very little um and yeah and i think also that having i guess criminals gives them like less incentive to report her Um, and so one report alleges that nearly 500 children died in Georgia's charge. Um, I read somewhere. Yeah. How do, what? Yeah. Yeah. 500 children died. And I also read somewhere that she actually, um, would, in addition to arranging adoptions with like wealthy families or celebrities, she would arrange adoption adoptions by pedophiles who would obviously pay top dollar, um, so that they could, you know, buy and prey on children. What and is so, wrong with this woman? How yeah, did so I many people no... just let this, ha- how did she have like a judge in her back pocket and was doing all this? <laughs> she was making enough money that I think she was able to pay people off. I mean, she was paying doctors and nurses to snatch babies from and like hand them off to like one of Georgia's like drug addict goon who would like show up to pick up the kids. So it's absolutely insane. And yeah. And Georgia was so deviously bold that she would place ads in newspapers to raffle off children. (laughs) Um, each year, she would raffle off 20 to 30 babies in the newspaper's Christmas baby giveaway. Um, basically, people would buy like dozens and dozens of tickets at the cost of $25 per ticket, which today is $350. Um, and then whoever won would just get the ticket. And so, or would, sorry, whoever won would just get the baby. What on earth was going on back then? Yeah. I read somewhere that she ended up placing probably or ended up stealing probably around 5,000 children um, and obviously a good amount of whom unfortunately died, um, some of whom were adopted to not the best people and others who I guess got to be a little bit fortunate if they were adopted by celebrities or someone like that. And so, sadly, Georgia's kidnapping and baby trafficking scheme went on for over 20 years before any light began to shine on what she was actually doing. Just before the state of Tennessee was going to indict or formally charge Georgia for her crimes, she died of uterine cancer. And because she died before any charges came, like, for her, then 
like all of the all of her accomplices such as judges and doctors and i think even um the governor of tennessee also like escaped um any scrutiny or being charged as well um because basically the case died with her um i also read that afterwards um as things came to light um, the state of California and the state of New York both pledged that they would do everything in their power to, like, figure out who these children were, track them down, and, like, figure out who their birth parents were. But um, I think that was all just talk. As far as we know, they never, like, form- formally tried anything. And so the vast majority of these children, yeah. um, like, we don't know who they are other than Ric Flair. Flair with his fancy jacket. That's so sad, though. Yeah. I mean, what would you even do if you were able to find these things? Like, that just, it's already so messed up. Yeah. And with her, like, it's its its interesting because I did read a few cases that kind of, uh, I guess, like, profile in a way, similar to what you described. Yeah, she sounds like a whole other, she's got some other issues going on. I think she would just have to be, like a sociopath like there's no way that you have human emotions and are capable of doing that yeah like she's she's definitely crazy something's wrong yeah or is she just that greedy that she saw a market and was like hey who cares well right yeah well and she found it sounds like the perfect market because it's you know so it was easier to manipulate back then to take advantage because adoption was such a hush hush kind of thing that was done you know very much under the table and I would imagine there was a lot of shame around not being able to have children of your own so she really just took advantage of a market she just saw a hole and was just like yep this is how I'm going to make a lot of money she just sounds like an awful person yeah and I I, like I I was on that mindset up until I like read that she also was sexually and physically abusing these kids where I'm like well, now I just, I think you're, I think she's just a very, very bad person. And if you believe in hell, I think that's probably where she is. <laughs> yeah. So Jeez. that is the case of Georgia Tan. All right, then. Well, well, well. That brings us to my case, which is very, very, very different from yours. And, you know, I think it'll be interesting to compare the two. Uh, My case is actually very recent. It's from 2019. So, and I'm going to mess up these name pronunciations, so just roll with me. It was February 5th, 2019. Elisa Miller had been in communication with a woman named Juliette Leilani. Leilani. Leilani Parker. Um... They'd met back in January when Miller had responded to a Facebook post in a group of thousands of strangers. Parker was offering a free photo session for women who were about to have a child or uh, had a baby that was less than one week old. Parker claimed she was interested in building her portfolio and said she would even drive to the homes of these mothers to take pictures. Parker had come to Miller's house on three different days, and on the third day, she brought some cupcakes and wine. She was accompanied by her 16-year-old teenage daughter. They divided the cupcakes into three groups and encouraged Miller to try a cupcake from each group. So Miller started to notice something strange. She was the only one who was offered a cupcake from the second group. 
A few minutes after eating it, she started to feel really weird. Her arms and legs and lips began to feel numb. She started to get nervous. She started to panic and she told Parker and her daughter to leave and she went to go, she wanted to go lay down. So she told them a few times to leave, but they just wouldn't leave. And finally they were like, okay, fine, we're leaving. Parker and her daughter um, took the time to wipe off their drinking glasses before they left, which is strange and eventually you know they took off so miller ended up calling 911 she told the dispatchers that she felt weird and spacey um she was vomiting during the call and said i don't know if i'm having an allergic reaction or if they drugged me with something because i was fine and then i ate a cupcake um i ate one and i was fine i ate another one and my face started getting numb miller also noticed that her house keys were missing so she texted parker to ask if she had seen them Parker denied it at first, but then later said she found her keys in her yard and had some random guy come and drop them off at Miller's home. The firefighters who arrived on the scene after the 911 call believed that Miller had been drugged. Two days later, Miller went to the hospital and had her blood tested. It showed that she had GHB, a common date rape drug that often causes blacking out and amnesia in her system. This prompted an investigation by the authorities. So Parker was a 38-year-old woman who had recently moved to the area. They were in Washington, I don't think I said that earlier, after running for mayor in Colorado Springs in 2019. She came in second out of four candidates with 12% of the vote. In Colorado, Parker worked as a marketer for a plumbing business. She used to advocate for getting veterans tiny homes, and when interviewed about her campaign, she said she was honest, caring, and respectful, with a good moral code and compass, and common sense, which we will see is very much not the case. So Parker didn't have much of a criminal history. Back in 2014, she had been arrested and charged with trespassing and larcenry in Joint Base Lewis, McCord and Washington State. She was out hiking. She said she wasn't aware that she was on military property. And also when she was hiking, she found some old ammunition and took it home with her. Smart. And one of the bullets spontaneously fired in her home and the police came. So she pled guilty to a misdemeanor of illegal burning and paid a $2,200 fine. Rule of thumb, people don't take things like that home. When you see bullets on the ground, don't bring them home with you and maybe don't light them on fire. I don't even understand. They said that the ammunition, like the bullet fired spontaneously in her home and she had to pay a fine for illegal burning. So was she lighting something on fire and the bullet just went on? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not an ammunition expert and it sounds like she You're wasn't not? either. And so <laughs> we're just, yeah, leave bullets alone, people. <laughs> okay. So that was her history. A little weird. And I think it's strange that she was running for mayor after all that happened because you would think that that would come up. Anyway, she didn't win, so maybe that's why. Um, so the more authorities were looking into Parker, the weirder things became. Parker and her daughter had been to houses of many other women and always exhibited strange behavior. Parker would take pictures of the babies with her Nikon camera, but then she would also take selfies with the babies on her phone. And they would always wipe down their drinking glasses before they left. So one of the women whose home that she'd previously visited, Victoria Morris, said that Parker came into her home and it was a little weird. She opened the door with her sleeve and she insisted on sitting on the floor of the home. 
Um, so Maura said that <laughs> she seemed a little off, but overall was not, you know, overly alarmed by her behavior. You know, maybe she was just like a germaphobe or something. Um, but none of the other mothers were ever offered cupcakes. It appeared that Parker was saving that for the baby she intended to kidnap. Um, so while investigating, authorities found out that Parker had asked someone that she was previously dating if she, they could get her some GHB. They also talked about taking a baby from a homeless person so they could raise it in a nice home. The man jokingly said that they should kidnap a baby, and Parker was like, yes, let's do that. Uh, she told him that she would marry him on the spot if he was able to get her a baby within the next five weeks. Okay. So, wow. Clearly, that relationship did not work out. What an offer, um, right? <laughs> Just imagine. <laughs> yeah, I... Uh, Anyway, um, so it became pretty obvious that Parker was planning to kidnap Miller's child. Parker was arrested and charged with second-degree assault and attempted kidnapping. Her daughter was also arrested and held in juvenile detention. So the morning of Parker's arrest, Victoria Morris gave birth to her child on the same day that this all went down. Um, the woman whose house she'd been to, but not kidnap the baby because it hadn't been born yet. Um... And she texted Parker from the hospital, letting her know the good news that she given birth, you know, and she was hoping to maybe get some more pictures after that. The next morning, Morris woke up to see Parker's face plastered all over the news. So Miller was absolutely terrified after all this happened. You know, someone came into her home, they drugged her, they were going to steal her kids, they stole her keys. Um, so she said, this is so sad. Since this happened, I'm terrified to be at my house. I don't want to go anywhere. Miller said through tears during a news conference. I don't like being at my home. I'm not sleeping. I'm not eating. I carry a machete, a knife, and pepper spray in my car. I sleep with a knife even under my pillow as a result of this. So the Pierce County Crime Stoppers ended up raising money to replace all of her locks and installed new window locks in her home, which I thought was very nice of them to do, given the circumstances. But yeah, that I feel like was a case that maybe related a little bit more to the psychology that, that we reviewed of something had clearly happened. She was really desperate to like have a child, you know, it didn't have too much information about her backstory and she already had children but you know it was very obvious that she was trying to kidnap a baby and raise it as her own and i think it's interesting too in this case i wish there was more information available on this that they ended up arresting her 16 year old daughter as well um was it because she was helping yes someone who is your main provider and that's i mean definitely you need to get out of the home but at at what point does it become your fault versus like yeah like you just need to be removed from that home because your mother is unstable and needs some type of treatment hopefully everyone involved is getting don't let strangers in your home don't let people off of Facebook, especially if they want to sit on the floor. <laughs> Sitting on the floor is fine. To me, it's... I think it's weird to come to someone's house and sit on their floor. I guess. If somebody came to my house and was like, I, no, thank you. I'm going to sit on the floor. I'm going to be like, all right, well, you're going to have to do that outside because <laughs> this is weird. <laughs> 
Our music is the track Wasteland by Joseph McDade. His Patreon and our podcast sources will be linked in the podcast description below. Any mistakes are entirely our own, so check out our wonderful sources for the most accurate information about these cases. We talk about some tough subject matter on our show. If you or someone you love is in need of support, please reach out to the Crisis Text Line by texting HOME to 741-741. They are available 24-7 and will connect you with a trained crisis counselor. You can also reach the National Domestic Violence Hotline by calling 1-800-799-7233. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Join us next week for another episode of Pink Collar, a true crime podcast.